This is an ABC podcast. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. Two nations have sort of come together in a spirit of reconciliation, but they're using words that are totally fictitious. They, they were invented in the 1950s. People are remembering something or venerating something that never actually happened. Those words are false. On RN, you're with The Myths of War, an eight-part series exploring Australia's war history and what's fact and what's not, with historian and writer Mark Dappen. Hi, my name's Dr Mark Dappen. This week, the lucky topic is Gallipoli. All went well until we were making the charge into rowing boats. Suddenly, all hell broke loose. Heavy shelling and shrapnel fire commenced. The ships that were protecting our troops returned fire. Bullets were thumping into us in the rowing boat. Men were being hit and killed all around me. When we were cut loose to make our way to the shore was the worst period. I, I was terribly frightened. The boat touched bottom some 30 yards from shore, so we had to jump out and wade into the beach. The water in some places was up to my shoulders. The Turks had machine guns sweeping the strip of beach where we landed. There were many dead already when we got there. Bodies of men who'd reached the beach ahead of us were lying all along the beach and wounded men were screaming for help. We couldn't stop for them. The Turkish fire was terrible and mowing into us. Like many Australians, I was completely taken by Bert Face's simple and humble memoir, A Fortunate Life. The book where Bert tells the story of his landing at Gallipoli on 25th of April 1915. I was so enchanted, in fact, that I used parts of Bert's book to represent the tragedy at Gallipoli when I served as editor of the Penguin Book of Australian War Writing. His account of the landing is moving, engaging and all too real. Professor Peter Stanley of UNSW Canberra, one of our leading First World War historians. He describes landing on Gallipoli and, and, and reports machine gun bullets, you know, striking the water around him. It's very dramatic, but it's completely invented because we know for a fact Albert Facey landed on Gallipoli about 10 days after the landing and wasn't there and we also now know that there were no machine guns striking the water on the landing. So Albert Facey's supposed memoir, his, his recollection of the Gallipoli campaign, uh, at least begins with something which is completely fictitious. Johnny Turkey 
was white and he primed himself well. He charmed us with bullets and he rained us with shell. And in five minutes flat, he'd blown us all to hell. Nearly blew us right back to Australia. I've always loved Derek Bogle's heart-rending ballad and the band played Waltzing Matilda. As a songwriter, Eric's got no obligation to stick to the facts, but the truth is Johnny Turk wasn't ready at all and he had no shells to rain. Here's Gallipoli historian Brigadier Chris Roberts. I mean, if we look at the landing at Gallipoli, I mean, we've been extolling a lie for 100 years. We didn't land a mile north. We didn't land in the wrong place. We were slightly off, but one of the battalions was put 800 metres closer to its objective than they would have been. In the initial wave, we landed 4,000 Australian infantrymen against 81 Ottoman riflemen. There were no machine guns covering the beaches. The machine gun company of the 27th Regiment was on the other side of the peninsula held in reserve, which was the doctrine of the time. where the landing failed was through poor Australian command decisions. Our modern memory of Australia's Gallipoli campaign, the battlefront that gave us the very first Anzac Day, is shrouded in myth from start to finish. And even after the finish, I don't mean myths like the Anzac legend, stereotypes and archetypes, I mean memories of so-called events that simply didn't happen. It seems to me that a lot of what's been accepted as war memory by post-war generations is actually memory of movies. Professor Peter Stanley. I think that's exactly the process that's occurred. And we know this for, say, Gallipoli, because uh, Al Thompson, 25 years ago, uh, did an, an oral history in which he showed that veterans of Gallipoli in the First World War altered their memories as th- films like Gallipoli, the, the 1981 film, came out. And, all, and you know, after that, uh, uh, images which were clearly taken from the film seeped into men's supposed memories. So we know that, that both participants are affected by that kind of influence, and we know that the, the general populace, who hasn't, which hasn't had that, inf- that, that experience, is also affected by portrayals of the experience. And uh, we have to be very much aware of that process so we can sift uh, truth from falsehood or, or invented from actual. So men who were at Gallipoli actually replaced their own true memories with memories derived from the movie Gallipoli. Yeah, and, and the, the portrayals of Gallipoli that had happened over the years. Here's Professor Alistair Thompson of Monash University. That's what we all do, and it's what soldiers and war veterans do. They're constantly trying to make sense of their past experience. Um, They're not usually inventing, they're not usually lying, but they are struggling to make sense, drawing upon whatever resources are available to, to make sense. And what happens later in their life, becoming a consciousness objector, becoming a pacifist, becoming a member of the RSL, reading the battalion history, watching Peter Weir's film Gallipoli, all of those things are feeding in to how we make sense of our past. Which parts of the film do the diggers remember? There's that wonderful scene where Mel Gibson and uh, I think it's Mark Lee, the two Australian soldiers are in Cairo and they see these English officers with donkeys with monocles and they put the monocles in their own eyes and then take them off and take the mickey of 
of these in, the upper-class autocratic English officers. Australians are crude, undisciplined, and the most ill-mannered soldiers I've ever encountered. And I remember a couple of interviews, almost exactly the same scene got replayed in interviews. Now, probably these older men in their younger lives had seen you know, autocratic, snobbish English officers, but in a way Peter Weir's film confirmed or reaffirmed that experience, rekindled it in their memory, reminded them to tell the story and helped them to make sense of their experience. Gallipoli was a movie of its time and the year 1981 was a very different time to the year 1915. In a way, the British become the baddies, mm -hmm. not the Turks. Uh, <laughs> we've been at war with the Turks in Korea on the same side, so we're, the Turks are now allowed to march on Anzac Day marches. Uh, Ataturk has told, told us that he's looking after our buried soldiers in Turkey. and Supposedly. Supposedly. Uh, so there's all that sort of stuff. And what happens is that the British, in, a, in Peter Weir's film, in an Australian popular mythology, that imperial relation which is fracturing after Britain joins the European community and we feel like we've been deserted, that all shifts in Australia. And the classic moment in Peter Weir's film Gallipoli is the moment when the men of the light horse are being sent across to, su to a suicidal death at the neck at Gallipoli. And the officer in the trenches is trying to get a message back to HQ and back at HQ a man with a very posh English accent is saying... Uh, go over, you've got to go over the top, etc. He's ignoring all the advice. And it's quite clear to an Australian audience that this is an English officer sending the Australians to their deaths. But actually, we know, and Peter Weir knew, to be honest, it was an, a Western Australian farmer um, <laughs> who just happened to have, in the film anyway, a posh English accent. Um, it was an Australian officer sending Australians to their death. But for the purposes of the film in the 1980s, we want to see... The Australians are sacrificed by someone or something, and it's the English or the British, and it's the British upper class and their incompetence. They're not going to make us go, are they? No, there's no point. Those men should have gone, Barton. Marker flags have been seen. Not by me, sir. I've asked for confirmation. From General Gardner. Your orders are to attack and you'll do so immediately. The British at Suvla must be allowed to get ashore. Is that clear? You are to push on. It's cold-blooded murder. I said push on. I remember the day It stands clear in my mind We stood down at Gondiri To wave you goodbye Your mouth was quietly weeping There was a tear in my eye as they sent you to Gallipoli to die You were all that we had Your mommy and me When he marched to the wreck You are proud as could be Even after the end of the war, the mythology around Gallipoli continued to grow. Australians and Turks now collectively venerate words supposedly spoken by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in 1934. Uh, the famous quotation where he starts, you the mothers, and he goes on to say that the Australian and Turkish soldiers who died on Gallipoli are buried together and, and so their mothers are, are, are the dead Australian soldiers' mothers. Those heroes 
that shed their blood and lost their lives. You are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets to us where they lie side by side in this country of ours. You, the mothers who send their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have now become our sons as well. So that there's a, um, a narrative and a rhetoric of a shared remembrance of reconciliation, a beautiful sentiment. But Mustafa Amal, Kemal Ataturk never spoke those words. He, those words are not his. He didn't write them. They, they were invented in the 1950s. So that's a case, I think, where two nations have sort of come together in a spirit of reconciliation, but they're using words that are totally fictitious. Now, there's no reason at all why Australia and Turkey can't be friends, and there's no reason at all why we can't accept those words as beautiful fiction. But they're not true. People are remembering something or venerating something that never actually happened. Those words are false. The words were crafted by a man called Sukriya Kaya, who was one of Ataturk's lieutenants. He was one of the officials responsible for the Armenian genocide, in fact. He was a close associate of Mustafa Kemal, Ataturk, as he became, and he wrote those words either deliberately ascribing them to Ataturk or allowing people to think that they were by Ataturk. Then they got picked up by an Australian light horseman, former light horseman, who visited Turkey in the 1970s, brought the words back to Australia, uh, added a bit to them. It was he who added the, the Johnnies and the Mehmets uh, line and then disseminated it. And the Turkish dip diplomats picked it up and saw that here was a wonderful vehicle for reconciliation. And of course, Turkey was trying to curry favour with the West. It was trying to enter Europe. It was trying to be reconciled to the West at a time when Turkish military governments had staged coups, so it needed to be rehabilitated. And this quotation served their purposes to gain sympathy and favour in nations like Australia and New Zealand and to an extent Britain. And it worked perfectly because those words are now all over the country and people think they're real. Governments use them and the Australian government uses them in, on Anzac Day, but they're not actually true. Of course, the statements we heard in 2019 from Turkish President Erdogan had an entirely different flavour. The lead-up to this Anzac Day had also been tainted by a political controversy. Campaigning in local elections, last month a rabble-rousing Turkish president had also linked Gallipoli to the Christchurch attacks carried out by an Australian white nationalist. Your grandfathers came here and saw that we were here. Then some turned back on foot, some in caskets. President Erdogan's threat was a stark contrast to the words of Kemal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, which were read out today at Gallipoli. You are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. Australians have a, an interesting relationship with, with Turkey over Gallipoli. Basically, Australians have imbibed what I'd call a Kemalist interpretation of Gallipoli. That is to say, the view put by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk 
that Gallipoli represents the defence of the Turkish nation, very patriotic, nationalist spin. And Australians who've been to Gallipoli basically imbibe that, that rhetoric, helped by people like um, Les Carlyon, whose book Gallipoli, the 2001 book Gallipoli, uh, expressed that very strong view that, that the Turks were defending their nation and that they were justified in their, their defence and Australians were part of an, an invading force that should never have been there in the first place and so on. Well, of course, Turkey's changing. That Erdogan's uh, nationalist, Islamist philosophy rhetoric has taken over. So if you go to Gallipoli now, what you see in the Kabatipi Interpretive Centre is a, a completely different line. It's still nationalist. You know, the Turkish flag's everywhere. But now those defenders of Gallipoli are portrayed as, as martyrs for the Islamic faith. So uh, what, what Erdogan's done is to overlay along that nationalist rhetoric, an Islamist layer, which Australians are a bit less sympathetic towards. But it means, though, that the easy assumption that, of course, we're all friends now and that everything's reconciled, that, that assumption no longer obtains. That The idea in Turkey is, is not to accept reconciliation. It's to extol the, the defenders of Gallipoli as martyrs for the faith. We are the crusaders, the invaders, and the people who come here to celebrate their part in the, in the war and uh, to valor, valorise their part in the campaign, that's, that doesn't fit into their rhetoric. So Australia and Turkey, at an official level, are now at, at cross-purposes about Gallipoli, whereas 20 years ago, I mean, when Bob Hawke went there in 1990, the 75th anniversary, completely different spirit of reconciliation. No place on the Gallipoli Peninsula was more fiercely contested than these few acres where we now stand. Known to the Anzacs who captured it as Lone Pine and to the Turkish soldiers who defended it to the last as the Ridge of Blood. In three days of literally hand-to-hand -hand combat in August 1915, more than 2,000 Australians and 5,000 Turks died here. And seven of the nine Victoria Crosses awarded to Australians at Gallipoli were won here. In a unique act of honour to fallen foes, the people and the government of Turkey have dedicated this ground as a memorial to the 8,700 Australians who died on Gallipoli. In making this pilgrimage today, we first pay the tribute of honour to the fallen of Turkey, fighting on their own soil, dying in defence of their homeland, inspired by the indomitable leadership of a man of destiny, Mustafa Kemal, known to history as Kemal Ataturk. Australia and Turkey used to share a view of Gallipoli, uh, a view rooted in that false uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk quotation, uh, and by their sharing 
nationalist foundation myths through the campaign. So Australians would go to Turkey and be quite comfortable listening to Turks talk about Gallipoli because they accepted that, that it was a, a, a national moment for Turkey, just as it was for Australia. Well, that unity has now been broken because uh, in Turkey, the Erdogan philosophy has grown up, which sees Gallipoli not just as the defense of the Turkish nation, but also the defense of the Islamic faith. And so the, the view presented of Gallipoli to Turks now on Gallipoli is very much a defense of the faith and the nation. And so, if you like, Westerners, invaders, crusaders as they're often called, have no place in that Turkish narrative of Gallipoli, that new Turkish narrative. Um, we're invaders, we are interlopers, we're, we're infidels. Come on, lads, unload your rifles. Nothing up the spout, we're going in with the bayonet. No bullets. Unload. Nothing up the spout, we're going in with the bayonet. Steady, lads. Wait for it. My thanks to today's guests, Professor Peter Stanley, Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society, UNSW Canberra, Brigadier Chris Roberts, AM, author of the definitive study, Landing at Anzac, Professor Alistair Thompson, Professor of History at Monash University and author of the classic Anzac Memories. Next time on Myths of War, I take a look at some myths, if myths they be, about General Sir John Monash, the so-called outsider who won the war. Was he really an outsider? Did he really win the war? Or did the Brits, the Americans, or even, so help us, the Canadians have a bit to do with it as well? Monash has a rich but contested legacy. As author of the study Jewish Anzacs, I guess I'd hope I'd be especially aware of the sensitivities around the figure of the only Jew to command an army anywhere in the world during the First World War. But there's no stone unturned on myths of war. To overstate Monash's achievements could lead to people delving into the real Monash and then ridiculing him. In other words, swinging the other way and I think what we need to do is, with our military history, we need to be much more mature. I think our military history at the moment gives a impression of national insecurity, of national hubris, of national arrogance. And I think, and it also misleads our own people. And I think the Australian people really need to know the truth about the AIF in the First World War. They did a wonderful job but to take them out of the job that they did and put them in a context that 
for example, the claim that an Australian Corps commander won the war is just ludicrous and, and it brings us into ridicule. You've been listening to The Myths of War with historian and writer Mark Dappen. You can listen back or download all eight programs in this series. You'll find them on the RN homepage or via the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.